television shows assume that you're surfing the net while you're watching, right? And that for us, this was a kind of a, a getting in the way of our ability to connect with each other. But I thought to myself, I really need to get to this conference because I no longer can even watch a television, right? Having a few other things going on at the same time. I can't, I can't handle that. And it reminded me of that great New Yorker cartoon from a few years ago where there's a father reading uh, to his son a bedtime story and he's reading it on a tablet and the caption simply says, and then Winnie the Pooh decided that it was time to check daddy's email again. <laughs> Maybe you know what I'm speaking about. Uh, and as I was also talking to and, and some students of mine, because uh, I work with the, uh, undergraduates at the University of Virginia, and we run small groups, and I asked them about distraction and what do they think about that word, and they all, of course, took out their phones. And then they told me that there's a new iPhone update to your iPhones that everyone was sort of asked, invited, urged to, um, incessantly urged to download last week. And um, one of the features is that it tells you how much time you're spending on your phone. And so I haven't downloaded that. I mean, who wants to know that? That's frightening. Uh, you know, I found out, you know, someone told me, hey, actually, you know, it has, I, I would rail against Fitbits and talks and say, how, why does everything need to be measured and quantified? And can't we just walk places without having to just use it for our justification? And was, they said, well, you know, Dave, your phone is actually registering your steps at all times. And I took it out and I was like, it is. I'm being measured. Whether I like it or not, I found out that I'd only done, you know, 2,000 steps one day, and I felt terrible. And all of a sudden, now I'm going to be measured by being told how much time I'm spending on my phone every day? No, thank you. So I might have to go Android with you guys. I just have to forego our app. Um, so anyway, distraction. Uh, w- at what point does, d- does, does our, our vocations, our our times with our family, our, uh, you know, the, the, our creative work, when, what, at what point does that become distraction from the bulk of our time which is spent in distraction mode? You know, when, 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 does the, when do the proportions flip? When does it turn out that you've been surfing uh, the internet for uh, you know, Norm MacDonald's stand-up bits for 45 minutes and then 15 minutes you've spent actually trying to write an article uh, the article becomes the distraction from Norm MacDonald, not vice versa, right? Anyway, maybe, maybe that's not, doesn't distra- describe you. <laughs> Describes me, but there's a lot of, I thought I'd go a little bit bigger picture and talk about some cultural reasons why people think we're so distracted, because everyone pretty much agrees that it's on the rise, at least as it's experienced technologically. Now, there's, uh, I would say that there's two main theories about distraction. Uh, and the first one is that distraction is something that comes from the outside. And I think both of these, by the way, are, are part of the truth. That our sort of high-tech, urbanized, very um, um, consumerist society is designed to distract us. And, you know, if, if you're someone who traveled here by, by air and you had to go through airport security, you know that when you print out your boarding passes now, there's an advertisement on the back of the boarding pass. And then when you get to security, you, you take out the bins and you're putting, you know, you know, put your laptop in there. And you're like, you look, oh, wait, someone's advertising to me here. I, like, you know, if I'm talking to my wife and, and we're trying to get through with the kids and they're trying to distract me. And, and all of a sudden I've got a little, like a little thing telling me about the snack bar. And um, I'm distracted. And then I walk down, you know, the uh, airplane to my gate and there's 
CNN, airport CNN showing, and you know, everyone seems to be so depressed, um, and we're trying sort of not to tune in to whatever interview they're playing, because it's not normal CNN, it feels like a little bit more calibrated to get our attention. You ever notice that? It's a little more sensationalistic, it's like, it's like, the, it's like the Inquirer version of CNN, <laughs> and, and you're kind of like, wait, what is that? You know, um, so this is one of the reasons that pe people, um, you'll notice that if you go into like the Admiral's Lounge at the airport, you've ever gotten access to one of those, if you get frequent flyer programs, what is the first thing you notice about it? It's silent, and there's no more advertising. You hear like people drinking, it, it feels luxurious because you're not being addressed. You're not being distracted. And this is what Matthew Crawford, who wrote a book about distraction, he's a Charlottesvillian, it's called The World Outside Your Head, and it made all these waves a few years ago. And he says that we have, um, we talk about the right to water and air, but we don't talk about the right not to be addressed. We need something about, for human sanity, we need to not be addressed constantly. And the, although we have a hard time legislating that because it's, it goes against, people can make money by addressing you all the time and appealing to your preferences and your free will that we just, we just heard. Um, it, it, there's, there's something luxurious and health-inducing about not being addressed sometimes that people in the Admiral's Lounge are enjoying, right? They're just, I need some peace and quiet, and you notice everyone sort of calms down. And that's what's going on. Um, then you also hear about, today, you hear about something called the attention economy. Anyone know this term? The attention economy. The idea is that we all have limited amounts of attention. I can only attend to so, so many things. In, at a given moment or at a given time, um, I'm, I, I could be reading this book, I can be dealing with this child, I can be thinking about this work problem, I can be thinking about, um, you know, the national headlines or something. And so they know that people only have so much attention, and so what do we do? We try to shout louder and louder at each other to distract us from other things. And that's not just the news media. That's also in our personal lives. That's, that's people on social media. You're tr you know that people's attention is valuable, and so you're really trying to get at it. It's a, become a commodity, and that's a very interesting way of thinking about our attention. It, it implies that we are very, very distracted. And so there's this theory that we are distracted because we're like Cruella de Vil. I talked about that first night. We're cruising down the highway. We're, we've got the wind blowing and our eyes are bloodshot and we're holding tight to the wheel and we've got so many things that we're trying to juggle at once. But while we're doing it, we also got a barrage of oncoming cars and lots of billboards and all of a sudden we find ourselves in the ditch because it feels unsustainable being addressed by that many needs uh, that often. And um, we, we often feel this as a kind of pressure on ourselves and our lives. So that's one of the, that's how some people talk about it. But the, re the reason it's not sufficient, it's true, and as anyone who goes into that airport lounge will tell you, and in fact, anyone who comes to church will tell you. One of the things I hear more and more as someone who works in a liturgical church setting is that people are coming into your church to escape the noise. Modern life being defined by noise. But... We make a mistake, a huge mistake, when we say the noise is all out there and it's trying to get us. And if I could fix these things out there, that's the problem. We may, the, the mistake is twofold, that we're not taking into account our, com, our complicity. 
And if you, how do we talk about distraction? It's always a little self-serving. We say it's a passive voice thing. We say we're distracted by the internet or our cats. And it makes us seem like the victims of our own decisions. You know, no one had a gun to your head forcing you to browse all of those cat videos, you know? But, or on Instagram to keep scrolling. It's, but yes, the algorithms are, are, they are trying, they know exactly what they're doing to make sure you never stop scrolling. But um, to say that it's all out there and you're not somehow complicit in it is, um, is, is naive. Um, one friend of mine says, distractions don't look, the, the problem with distractions is they don't look like distractions until they finish distracting you. At the time, no one's, no one's thinking that they're being distracted. We're sort of electing in to our distractions. Um, and also, you know, as, as you get back to, uh, if to the extent that we do understand that we are, uh, that we are complicit in our distractibility, we, it becomes a major source of guilt, does it not? If you're, uh, I felt, feel like young parents, and, and especially young college students, they're constantly being told, to put down their phones. If you ever go to a, if you go, you've gone to a playground recently, uh, all the parents are like this, you know, like that. Stop that, you know. Stop that. Wait, hold on. Just one second. Um, we're all distracted, and it's in a major source of contemporary guilt and uh, law. Um, and that, that tells us something, I think, about what's really going on uh, in that we are trying through our distractions to actually get relief from the insane amounts of demand that are being foisted on us. So we're opting into our distractions partly because um, we need to feel a little better. <laughs> and we're, 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 we, we think we're going to get a little relief. Um, well, as I was preparing this talk, another person told me that uh, we were talking about acedia yesterday as this great, uh, the sort of sin of, of sloth and how that's, uh, we, we've, one of the things we do with our, the busyness that defines most of modern life is actually a way of uh, anesthetizing yourself and medicating yourself so you don't actually ever have to think or feel anything. Um, I think there's also, like, you know, the curiosity used to be, Aquinas and Augustine always talked about curiosity as a vice not as a virtue. Today we think that it's good to be curious, it's good to master as many things as you possibly can, uh, to be a multitasker and have a breadth of expertise. But um, Aquinas and Augustine saw this as uh, a person who is, gets blown about by whatever comes your way. Image crowding. You can never, it, like you, you're thinking about God and then you see a, a little rabbit scamper across your, your, your view and you start thinking about the rabbit. If you're interested in too many things, that's actually a sign of immaturity. And in Ephesians, Paul talks about it in those, in those terms too. About people, you know, we once were children uh, blown about by every fresh wind of doctrine. It's not that we're, uh, that our interest in this, uh, this is how Augustine puts it, he says, I go no more to see a dog coursing a hare in the circus. I guess that was like circuses of the, you know, northern Africa at that time. You just watch a little dog run after a rabbit. Um, sounds exciting. <laughs> but in the open country, if I happen to be passing, that coursing haply, which is just a hare, will distract me from some weighty thought and draw me after it. And unless uh, thou, having seen, uh, made me, see my, see my weakness... 
uh, did speedily admonish me, I become foolishly dull. So this, this sort of distraction is, is kind of, we're not totally wrong to moralize it. it there's, a, there's, at least in the Christian tradition, distraction to being, thinking about everything that comes in front of you can be a way of never thinking about anything at all uh, or never thinking about anything important. But the question, if we do choose it, if we are complicit, it's not just Madison Avenue, it's not just big data distracting us, but we are complicit in our distractions. Why do we choose our distractions? Why, why do we choose to you know, carry these phones? You know, do we feel like we, we, a lot of us feel like we have to. Well, the big theory about that, and then I think is one that we can all sign on to, is that we're, we choose distraction because our souls are troubled. Our souls are troubled. And you have uh, Nietzsche talking about this, and you have Russell Brand talking about this, and you have uh, uh, Pascal talking about this. Everyone sort of talks that we, we have a hard time sitting still because we don't want to, as J.D. talked about yesterday, we really don't want to be confronted with ourselves. And that is what we are doing. But that's, that's, that's the second thing. I want to say that what, what troubles us are, is threefold. It's first, we have this addiction to autonomy that Dr. Paulson just spoke about. This is a very interesting thing because we associate autonomy with freedom and heteronomy, someone else telling you what to do, with um, oppression. That's, of course, a, a slightly, that's a moralized take on these things. But um, technology provides us always with the illusion of autonomy. What do I mean? You're sitting at a stoplight and you reach to check your email. Uh, and when you do that, you achieve momentary liberation from uh, a set of you know, oppressive circumstances, being made to wait. And you see, this, is, this happens with people in waiting rooms. Uh, you know, that happens when we're uh, check before we're crossing the street. You know, we use our phone to shake the bars of a temporary prison cell and to push back against the indignity of being made to wait. I'm in charge. I'm in charge. Put another way, we use technology to rebel against anything that would seek to constrain or confine us to the law which addresses us, addresses us by telling us that we are creatures, men and women with limits and dependencies. We shake our fists and insist, no, no, we are creators. We are the ones in charge. I can handle things just fine on my own, uh, especially if the car behind me would stop honking and let me think straight for a second. Oh, oh shoot, the light went green. Yeah. So uh, we're addicted to autonomy in a way that we've equated it with freedom in a, in a sense that I, is, is, I don't have to argue with you intellectually. We know it's not true experientially because there's nothing less autonomous than a ton of people walking around staring at their phones. They look like they're being led by the phone. You know? You don't have to, I don't have to uh, illustrate it for you. And you watch as people, um, you know, the other day I... I was looking at my phone while I was walking to uh, the corner in Charlottesville, and of course I bumped right into a pole. And I thought to myself, I'm, I'm a 40-year-old man, and I'm bumping into poles. <laughs> I just watched my five-year-old do that. That makes sense. And then uh, the next five people coming up, the, they're all students, though the one was that looked like a graduate student, they're all staring at their phones too. And I almost said, you know, um, watch out, there's a pole right in front of you. <laughs> But I decided not to, because I thought maybe they could use a wake-up call, too. I was like the, uh, the merciful Samaritan in a different way. Um, but this is the cruel irony that we all know so well. 
is that our addiction to control, and with it takes the form of distraction, our addiction to control ends up controlling us. This is what sort of the definition of what it means to be a sinner. Now, everyone pretty much acknowledges the crazy-making capabilities of technology, of smart technology. And, you know, over the years as we've done these conferences, I thought to myself, Can I, I don't want to do another talk that mentions phones, that mentions smart technology. It's such an easy target. It feels boring. But it's, it dominates all of our lives. So if you're not talking about people's relationship with their phones, you're not talking about their life. And you're not talking about my life. I detail in this, uh, I've talked about it on the website, I've talked about it in a magazine, I've talked about it in every conceivable way I know how, but I tried to go back to a flip phone three years ago. And because it was distracting me. It was distracting me from my kids. It was distracting me from my wife. It was distracting me from what was important. And, um, you, know, I, you know, the day your son comes home from, from pre-K and he has a picture of the whole family, but you're holding a phone in the picture, that's not a good feeling. You know, that's that. I didn't draw pictures. Of that. My, my parents had their own issues, but they weren't, like, looking at a phone all the time. And so I thought to myself, I need to get rid of this. And so I go to the, to the cell phone store and I, I gave up the phone and it, Unfortunately, it only lasted about nine months because I missed uh, having music with me. I needed to be distracted by that. And mainly, I just didn't, um, I didn't know how to get anywhere. <laughs> and you know what? This is great. No one else did either. So how do I get to your place? Oh, just plug it in your GPS. You don't know the directions to your place? Uh, I think you take a left, uh, you know. <laughs> There's a, somewhere to go down. I don't know. Just plug it in your GPS. It's like, I don't have a GPS. So I, I remember I was going to a conference in San Diego a couple of years ago. And, and I get there and I, I say, uh, you know, do you have a, a Garmin I could rent? And they're like, we think we have it across the street. And so I'm waiting for 45 minutes as they go and dig out a Garmin that barely works. You know what a Garmin is? It's like a GPS device. And, um, and then they, t they like charged me like 15 bucks a day for that thing. And it didn't really work. Um, so anyway, uh, I had to go back to a cell phone because it sort of, you can't really function in the world without one, it turns out. Uh, I joke, you become like a vegan on the 4th of July, like everyone's constantly having to plan around you. <laughs> and like, maybe one day a year that's fine, but every single day, you know, you know, my wife sends me a picture of our kids, I was like, you know, can you email it to me? <laughs> no, no, I'm not going to email it to you, and, and just forget about communicating with anyone under 25. Um, <laughs> But I would say that the reason we know how crazy our, uh, our phones make us, we, we, we're, we're not blind to this. We talk about it at every, every publication of every political uh, persuasion of all across the spectrum says that something about our relationship with smart technology is having an enormous mental health toll on us. And, um, but, and yet we continue to opt in. We opt in because we feel we can't opt out, but we also want to opt in because it's, we, these devices, we've come to rely on technology to aid us in the quest for what I would just call enoughness. But you might also call, in religious terms, it's righteousness. The strategy that we use with our technology is twofold, and it's very religious. The first thing we do with our technology, with our distractions, is we're trying to abate condemnation. And the second thing we're trying to do is we're trying to pronounce absolution or secure absolution. What do I mean? Well... Uh, as J.D. mentioned yesterday, our preoccupation with stimulation is evidence of a fear of silence. Um, we, we don't want to have no one addressing us. 
uh, or we don't, want, we don't want to be the only one addressing us. We've got the voices inside of our head that are constantly addressing us. So I'd rather have someone else address me so I could drown out those voices. Nietzsche, as I said, he wrote that haste is universal because everyone is in flight from themselves. That's 1887. And in the 17th century, you know, Pascal said that all men's miseries derive from not being able to sit in a quiet room alone. And this is one of the reasons why mindfulness has become such a popular uh, you know, and therapeutic activity because it's like the intentional practice of doing nothing. And, it's, and if you've tried it, it's really hard. We did it, we did like sort of a centering prayer exercise with our uh, church staff a couple years ago. And a few of the people just had to leave the room. They were that uncomfortable with silence. They couldn't handle it. And I, I feel that way. Uh, David Foster Wallace, um, the writer articulated this theory in his unfinished novel, The Pale King. This is what he wrote. He said, maybe dullness is associated with psychic pain because something that's dull or opaque fails to provide enough stimulation to distract people from some other deeper type of pain that's always there, if only in an ambient, low-level way, in which most of us spend nearly all our time and energy trying to distract ourselves from feeling, or at least feeling directly or with our full attention. Because surely something must lie behind not just Muzak in dull or tedious places, but now an actual TV in waiting rooms, supermarket checkouts, airport gates, SUVs, back seats. Walkman, iPods, Blackberries, you can tell he, he was underdoing it he, from a different era. Cell phones that attach to your head. This terror of silence with nothing diverting to do. I can't think anyone really believes today's so-called information society is just about information. Everyone knows it's about something else way down. In other words, stimulation, whether it's pixelated or whether it's the 17th century, distracts us from that which we would rather not feel, which is condemnation, which is pain, which is guilt, which is shame, which is fear. Uh, Russell Brand put it this way in his new book, The Comedian. He said, what I used to think of as happiness was merely distraction from pain. That's a heavy thing to say, Russell. But we flee boredom, we flee silence because of what we encounter there, which is ourselves. Screens distract us from, distract us from our core pain, which is the pain of not being enough. The reality of our own finitude, uh, what some call existential angst. We theologians, as you've heard this past weekend, uh, we would ascribe these impulses to the avoidance, not of messaging generally, but a specific type of message. We don't want to hear the law. We don't want to hear accusation, and we especially don't want to hear the verdict of the law, of God's law, that we are guilty, you know, as, as, as that we are terminally guilty. And again, this predates our distraction, to, uh, it predates Apple by a long shot. I always think it's kind of um, ironic, uh, or tragically ironic, that the, the Apple symbol is of, you know, a bite taken out of an apple. It's, it's referring to the Garden of Eden. And um, we've always just sought to distract ourselves from pain and guilt. Uh, what's changed to be our own gods, what's changed is the ease with which we can now do so. I mean, you also think of Jesus himself, you know, in early in Mark, he's, he's retreating. It, the first chapter's not over before he's getting out of there. Early in the morning, he goes away to a quiet place. He's, he's escaping momentarily, retreating at least, from the endless stream of human need and noise to commune with God. I think we... we um, that it's, it's, there's something necessary about the spiritual life. There's something necessary about stillness. And I'm going to talk about that in a second. But it is ironic that, that we often respond to modern distractibility by moralizing it. 
by shaming parents and teenagers into paying better attention lest they face public disapproval. But the whole point of the distractions are to distract themselves from the, the condemnation they already feel so the dynamic feeds on itself. You see what I'm saying? Um, and I think that this is actually part and parcel of our religiosity or, or like declining numbers of attendance in, in capital R religious institutions. Um, people who come into church, you know, they, they, they talk about how they enjoy the silence, that there are fewer and fewer spaces where passivity can re- be reliably experienced, where you can sit and receive, or where just sitting in a place isn't frowned upon, but understood as laudatory, even necessary. I think people crave that, but they also fear it for exactly the reasons I've talked about. Um, you know, uh, young people may not be able to quote any of the creeds or tell, tell you what the sermon meant, but they know what refuge feels like. Um, and in a culture of distraction, the pauses built into the liturgy of a church service can be downright subversive. They point to an alternate mode of life, of human being, rather than human doing, as the cliche goes. A sacred order marked by calm rather than effort. Andrew Sullivan, the essayist, put it this way. He said, the reason we live in a culture increasingly without faith is not because science has somehow disproved the unprovable, but because the white noise of secularism has removed the very stillness in which it might endure or be reborn. I agree wholeheartedly with that statement, although it's it's not the full truth. Um, And that's why it makes me sad when we see well-meaning, I think, religious professionals trying to entice people into the pews by means of fresh, like, religiously sanitized distractions. Or when they see it as their missional duty to craft services in which each and every moment is filled with language or light. It's not an accident that some of, so many of the young people who grew up in sort of flashy evangelical churches have ended up Greek Orthodox. You know, they're, they just need some quiet. <laughs> they, they, they can't associate God with all that, uh, all that pizzazz. So that's the condemnation piece. That's what we're doing, distraction as a way of, of fleeing condemnation. What about the absolution part? Isn't that the other part of what makes distraction so appealing? Well, I, as I said, a, a way of quieting, uh, distraction is a way of quieting the voice of condemnation within. The, it, whether that be just total anxiety, whether that be self-criticism, what, what, what Dr. Paulson just spoke about and what J.D. talked about, is that the, you, know, you come to find out being a law unto yourself you're often, is often a much more merciless law than any that's coming from outside. Um, I, Alan Jacobs talked about it as we're not actually addicted to our machines. We're not actually addicted to these things. They're just contraptions made up of silicon chips, plastic, metal, and glass. None of these, when combined into complex and sometimes beautiful devices, are things that human beings become addicted to. We are addicted, and that's the behavior around our our distractions is addictive behavior. We are addicted to one another. More specifically, we're addicted to the affirmation of our value, of our very being that comes from other human beings. We are addicted to validation. We are addicted to justification. These are the vehicles by which we ask the question, by which we address the world. Am I enough? Do you love me? That's what we're trying to do. We think that the next email, the next Instagram picture will scratch the affirmation itch just a little more satisfactorily. The next blog post, the next text, what have you. We're looking for some sense of enoughness. We're looking for some absolution. 
Um, uh, and we're hoping that we're addressed in return. And you know, Jacob says that, you know, you might think that all this craving for validation isn't a problem. You know, what's so wrong with people getting a little validation? I mean, it's, it's good so far as it goes. But you find that there's never enough. You can never get enough validation. And even if, you're, if you believe in God and the God of the Bible, well, then you have Paul asking the Galatians, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were trying to still please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So, who knows? To the extent that distraction is killing us, and we are too distracted to notice, it may also be bringing us into contact with the divine in a way that no amount of carefully chosen, quietly contemplated words can. Because the God who dwells in silence does not exist independent of the noise of life. Nor is he waiting for you and me to calm our own storms. Miraculous it may sound, the God of the Bible has a predilection for hopeless rationalizers and their hypocritical friends. And it's at that place, that place of never-enoughness, that place where, where, where the condemnation brings us to our knees, the crazy-making, when we, we drive the, the coupe de ville into the ditch, that we hear that God actually does address us. And he doesn't just address us with the law. We, we, you know, um, one of my favorite passages in Mark is the, at the very beginning, when Christ is baptized and the word comes from above, the, the skies open, the dove descends, and it says, you are my son, beloved, with whom I'm well pleased. And you, when I talk to young people about that passage, I say, have you noticed anything a little odd about this? Um, he's getting approval before he does anything. The acceptance comes before the accomplishment. The, the pattern of the Christian life is a life lived in response. It's, it's the new creation. That Most of the world is sort of living under the law and the old creature is living under the law in which we're trying to constantly wrestle some sort of answer to the question, do you love me? Am I enough? Out of our uh, various pursuits. And here you have in the New Testament right from the beginning, you have not only the, the descent, but you have um, the, the answer given. Uh, right there, before Jesus does anything. It's the, it's the answer that we receive in our baptism as well. The answer from 2 Corinthians, uh, you know, the verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 18. As surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no. But in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Yes, in Christ, the divine mediator and advocate who suffered silence from his father. Who, this relation who relates to us, but not in a distracted way. Have you ever had to try to have a relationship with a distracted person? Just talk to my wife. It's not easy. Um, I also think about, though, the beginning of Mark, you know, when, when Jesus does go away, and he is trying to get away, perhaps, from the noise, at least momentarily. He, what, he's interrupted. He's interrupted. They say, everyone's looking for you, Christ. Life gets in the way. But he does not meet those followers with a rebuke or with a rejection. He doesn't give them a lesson about distraction and his need for solitude. Instead, he responds with kindness and renewed focus. And he goes into town to preach the gospel. Not to get caught back up in the noise, but to preach the gospel. To give the proclamation that God has intervened on behalf of a species that is hell-bent on isolating itself from love. 
and procuring for paying for what it's given for free, for establishing on its own steam, for being its own God. That God has ransomed those in captivity to distraction and sadness. What I'm trying to say in all of this is that if the law demands that we devote our undivided attention to things above, and that we focus resolutely on love of God and of neighbor, well then the gospel announces that God is attentive to us. Yes, to you, and even in the midst of your distraction. Or to paraphrase 1 John, real hope is this, not that we attend, but that we have been attended to. And I want to end there, but I'm going to read the collect for a prayer for persons troubled in mind or in conscience, and then maybe take some questions before we head on out. But those are my brief uh, sort of words about distraction, that we are Uh, There is a lot of distraction out there that seems to be uh, coming at us for, you know, macro reasons. And yet we are complicit. We want to be distracted because we want autonomy and we also want to avoid the voice of condemnation that is inside of us. And then ultimately we want to hear the voice of absolution, which we never seem to actually get from those distractions. And yet God has intervened on behalf of a distracted people half of you and me, with his love, with his mercy, in the form of his son. And that's why we pray this prayer for persons troubled in mind or in conscience from the 1662 prayer book. This is for Neil Willard and all of us. Let us pray. O blessed Lord, the Father of mercies and the God of all comforts, we beseech thee, look down in pity and compassion upon this thy afflicted servant, Thou writest bitter things against him and makest him to possess his former iniquities. Thy wrath lieth hard upon him and his soul is full of trouble. But, O merciful God, who has written thy holy word for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of thy holy scriptures, might have hope, give him a right understanding of himself and of thy threats and promises that he may neither cast away his confidence in thee, nor place it anywhere but in thee. Give us strength against all our temptations, and heal our distempers. Break not the bruised reed, nor quench the smoking flax. Shut not up thy tender mercies in displeasure, but make us to hear of joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Deliver us from fear of the enemy, and lift up the light of thy countenance upon us, and give us peace through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.